0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we will examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an explanation of what might be motivating Senator Joe Manchin to scuttle the two big initiatives Biden and the Democrats are pushing, the For the People Act and the infrastructure package, and speak with Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts, and joins us to discuss how Manchin is carrying out the agenda of the Koch brothers who don't want the For the People Act passed because it strips out dark money, which they and other plutocrats use to shape our politics and buy our politicians. With the Koch brothers' front group, Americans for Prosperity, active in West Virginia, using the thank and spank strategy of praising Manchin for standing up to the Democrats on the filibuster while pressuring him to oppose bills like the PRO Act that they don't like as they have him compromise on a minimum wage increase and infrastructure, lofty talk of bipartisanship and upholding tradition ring hollow. Then we'll look into the deal Treasury Secretary Yellen worked out in London last weekend with G7 finance ministers who agreed on a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15% to avoid countries undercutting each other in a race to the bottom. Robert Hockett, the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University who has worked at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and is a regular contributor to Forbes magazine, joins us to discuss how the giant US tech firms are giving up tax havens in exchange for avoiding a national digital services tax the UK and other EU countries were about to introduce. Then finally we'll speak with TJ Newman, a former bookseller turned flight attendant who worked for Virgin American and Alaska Airlines from 2011 to 2021 and is the author of the new bestseller, her first novel, Falling. She joins us to discuss how flight attendants are now on the front line dealing with 2,500 incidents of unruly passengers and 1,900 cases of refusal to wear face masks this year so far, according to the FAA, with a Southwest flight attendant recently losing two teeth and suffering facial injuries as a result of an assault by an angry passenger." And joining us now is Lisa Graves, who is Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a Senior Advisor in all three branches of the Federal Government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Graves.
1: Hi, Ian. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it
0: thanks for joining us and Lisa a couple of months ago there was an article in the New Yorker by Jane Mayer inside the Koch backed effort to block the largest election reform bill in half a century that it was based on a leaked conference call between the Koch brothers and or their operatives Americans for Prosperity etc and other dark money groups in conversation with an aide to Mitch McConnell, Carl McKenzie and they agreed that it's, it's going to be tough for these plutocrats to be able to convince the grassroots uh, that getting rid of dark money is not a good thing. And they were really worried that it's going to be really hard to stop HR1 or SB1 getting rid of dark money because it was incredibly popular with the, with the public. At which point, Kyle, Kyle McKenzie basically agrees that the fix will have to be in, uh, quoting him, under the dome, meaning the Capitol Dome. In other words, you can't... You, with all your Koch brothers' money, etc., you can't do it with grassroots or astroturfing and spending all that money. Not that that's going to stop them from doing that. But basically, the, the agreement was it's too popular with the public, so the only way to get rid of dark money is to... Put the fix in under the dome. Well, looks like they're doing it. And as far as I can tell, the fix is Joe Mansion.
1: Well, you know, it, it really is astonishing. Jane Mayer's piece in The New Yorker, um, that leaked video, is just astonishing. If, if people haven't seen it, it's definitely worth checking out because... What it shows is how this group that was created by Charles Koch, who's one of the richest billionaires in the entire world, who runs one of the biggest companies in the history of the world, how his operatives have poll tested their efforts to stop the For the People Act, to stop those protections that would disclose dark money and it just they can't sell it. And so, what that call says, as you point out, Ian, is uh, so their strategy is the under the dome strategy, which is the exerting their special influence or their very special influence on certain members of Congress, certain legislators. And it certainly looks like Joe Manchin is um, is aiding them in this effort, is responding to their calls, even though a majority of people in this country, a strong majority of people from both parties uh, and you know and independents as well want these changes they want more sunlight in our elections they want this scourge of dark money uh to be you know um ended or at least outed um and and west virginians as well and so here you have the senator from West Virginia, basically uh, joining joining with Koch and the Koch operatives, or the Koch team, to block this vitally important legislation, and not just on the democracy pieces of it, apparently, but also on the voting, uh, not just on the democracy in terms of in terms of sunlight and sunshine, dark money pieces, but also on the voting rights uh, components of that. And so, it really is outrageous and um, super troubling.
0: So all of this lofty language coming from Joe Manchin about the need for bipartisanship and tradition and comedy and working together and not breaking the binds, it's just a cover, right? I mean, he's feeling the heat from the Koch brothers because they're spending a lot of money and effort at, at the grassroots level in West Virginia through their... Various programs that they have here. On the one hand Americans for Prosperity are praising him for standing up against the Democrats and being so courageous but on the other hand they have uh, these videos called the Mountaineer Minutes and they've created a website West Virginia Values so they're more or less putting him on notice right at the same time as praising him for taking a stand making the point that standing up to your friends is even more courageous and standing up to your enemies. So what do you think, is this as simple as it is? It looks like this is what's going on. Am I jumping to conclusions here? Because nothing that Manchin said has ever made any sense. So there has to be another reason. And it, it looks as if this reason staring us in the face. It's the Koch brothers.
1: Well, it, it's certainly the case that his op-ed uh, this past week on the filibuster was just You know, nonsensical, inaccurate, inconsistent with history. And also, as you mentioned, Ian, this sort of holding out the hope for bipartisanship when the Republican Party in the Senate under Mitch McConnell has signaled its willingness to stand in total solidarity against any progress on almost any issue. Um, You know, that that's not bipartisanship. That's not at least what bipartisanship used to mean. It used to mean compromise. It used to mean finding common solutions. But here you have one party that isn't interested in finding common solutions at all. The Republican Party, as it exists right now, certainly in the Senate under Mitch McConnell. And also that's that that's the same party right now that is operating in state after state to really annihilate key components of the right to vote in America. So you have a party really at war with democracy. So having bipartisanship with that party under these circumstances when the very issue at stake here is voting and exposing dark money in our elections. I don't think that that's any reasonable person could expect bipartisanship given the unreasonableness of that party. But as you as you point out also, Ian, um, the power of Charles Koch, the power of his network to sort of both thank and spank, as the saying goes, Joe Manchin um, is is significant and it can't be underestimated. Plus, Um, As Documented.net noted, that's an organization I helped co-found a couple of years ago, Documented.net noted a a couple of uh, months ago that Heritage Action, which is also funded by leagues of dark money was busing in people from north carolina virginia pennsylvania ohio all to go to the state capitol there in west virginia and pretend like all those outsiders actually stood for west virginia values and now as, as you also mentioned you have this big ad campaign run by none other than the organization created founded funded Ah, uh, by Charles Koch, claiming claiming that Joe Manchin isn't standing for West Virginia values. There should be ads talking about uh, the Koch, Charles Koch's values and how at odds they are with the interests of working people in West Virginia.
0: And again I'm speaking with Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a Senior Advisor in all three branches of the Federal Government, a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article 3 Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. So that's the puzzling part. How do they get away with it? These phony grassroots campaigns, it's called astroturfing. And these guys have perfected it with Koch Brothers. So now there's only the one of them left. But America's Prosperity and the, and the other group, too, Heritage Action. This is a, a well-known playbook now. How do they do it, though? I mean, are Americans that gullible? And does money talk? And that's what it comes down to, a combination of gullibility and the lure of money.
1: Well, I think you know you you also have a situation in West Virginia where you have had a, the decimation of uh, you know really local and independent news. You have a real domination of Fox uh, Fox News watchers in that state. So you have a, a base of people there who are getting fed and and eagerly imbibing misinformation and disinformation uh, through Fox and through the right wing networks a lot without having much of a counter uh, from any state leadership. In fact, Joe Manchin is the only statewide elected Democrat in West Virginia. Um, and so you're not—they're not hearing other other points of view. And also, what's astonishing to me all about West Virginia, in part, is. Even as the coal companies have really, um, really screwed over, in my view, uh, uh, the miners, like basically uh, uh, spinning off the pensions, trying to get out of the pensions, trying to get out of uh, paying health health care for uh, retired miners, you know, trying to get out of black lung liability, et cetera. Still, there's been this um, this attachment to that industry that has done uh, uh, p- the people of West Virginia wrong over and over and over again In term- when it comes to their health and their lives. And so you 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 have I think a population that apparently is very vulnerable to the type of sort of red meat fear based politics that uh, Coke the Coke operatives as well as the Coke funded um, sort of political operations are are running, and um and you have big money and who's countering that big money in West Virginia? Who's countering it within West Virginia to really try to make sure people understand the truth versus these. Trump groups and this astroturfing and this fiction that that Charles Koch and his team have spun up.
0: Yeah, and if, as a matter of fact, these are even more powerful in terms of misinformation and right-wing propaganda in West Virginia is Sinclair Broadcasting. They have much more penetrated the markets and, and dominate the markets than even Fox does. So this, again, it's sort of sad. You know, it goes back to the The book years ago about what's the matter with Kansas, the idea that it seems awfully easy for people to vote against their own interests when they're so you know, misinformed with constant propaganda and the kind of money that the Cokes have and this, these phony grassroots efforts that they have with that uh, rally that you mentioned that was organised by Heritage Action back in March in West Virginia. So it's paying off. So again, trying getting back to Manchin and the thank and spank strategy of the Koch brothers and uh, their front group, Americans for Prosperity, what can counter that? Who can reach out to Manchin? Because I take it that the scary part is if you push the guy too hard, he'll walk across the aisle and then Mitch McConnell become the majority leader. And I assumed that he wouldn't get reelected as a Republican. I mean, Sinema wouldn't get re-elected in Arizona if she switched sides uh, yeah. and became a Republican. But I think that if Manchin did walk across the aisle, he could run again as a Republican because it's what Trump won the state by 40 points and that's exactly what happened with the current governor, Jim Justice. He was a Democrat and then he switched to becoming a Republican So it looks like Manchin's got all the leverage. So how can you reach this guy? And basically, you know, I'm not saying you have to accuse him of being a coke whore, but that's what he appears to be. So how do you reach his better angels?
1: Well, that's a great question. I mean, I I think that, um, I think, you know, if I were working on that particular component, if I were in the the political electoral arena, I'd be doing a lot of polling in the state to show him, that you know, doing the Koch brothers' bidding isn't actually doing the bidding of the people of West Virginia, and they get it and they see it. Um, it is the case that he won his last election in 2018 uh, by um, less than 50. You know, basically his 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 uh, vote count was less than 50, percent but it was more than his opponent, and so he is you know in danger there in the state, in a state that has uh, that strongly supported Trump. Um, And I I know and there's been reporting on entreaties to get him to to switch parties and flip the Senate. You know, I think that's certainly some leverage that he has when it comes to other negotiations and and power. Um, I think it'd be hard to flip twice, you know, basically to go back and forth. Uh, He has possibly the maximum leverage he has now. But I I, I do think that um, this is a situation in which as the coke uh, as Charles Koch's operatives uh, said in that video that Jane Mayer reported on a couple of months ago, the people are not on on Coke's side and and that includes the people of West Virginia and so I think there's still more that can be done to reveal to him how that this is also a perilous path uh, to take Koch's side um and also you know in, in with respect to uh, Senator Cinema um you know th- they need to be hearing from people both in their states and and i think you know out of the states about what they're doing to our democracy he manchin and sinema have claimed that they're defending our democracy in fact they're not by de- by defending the filibuster what they're doing is they're they're enshrining minority power the power of a a minority party to thwart the will of a majority to thwart the will of the majority of people in this country and uh, democracy really is supposed to be Uh, rule by the majority, representative democracy. And so, you know, I I think there's more work to be done. I haven't given up. I know there's a lot of important things that are on the table that matter, that would really make a big difference in people's lives, including the the care infrastructure um, and the broader infrastructure reforms uh, to modernize our economy. There's so much that needs to be done. And this is not the time to be pretending uh, to be bipartisan, and certainly not the time to be doing the bidding of Charles Koch, who needs no more money, he needs no more power, and really should be uh, someone who, in my view, is a pariah for the damage he's done to our country.
0: So, in an interview on Fox over the weekend, which Mansion has no problem going on Fox, uh, with Chris Wallace, Chris Wallace, I thought, really nailed him, and he didn't have an answer for it. He said, if you're trying to bring about bipartisanship by attracting Republicans to vote in a bipartisan way for for the people the for the People Act and for the infrastructure package, both of which Manchin opposes, then why are you advertising up front that you're against the filibuster? Wouldn't it make sense tactically that if you could say that you would be willing to get rid of the filibuster, then you'd have some leverage over them. But because you've basically rolling over and showing your soft underbelly, you don't have any leverage to persuade anybody. And he didn't have an answer for it.
1: Well, that, it is. A, that's an incisive question, and there was no answer. And um, there is no answer because anyone who was a good negotiator and, and – you know, it's not as though Joe Manchin is not a smart person. He certainly has um, intellect and has held a lot of different offices at the state and federal, at the state level and now at the federal level. But to give away your your, your biggest um, piece of leverage, which is to say, actually, the filibuster is has been used for the most part with few exceptions, uh, some exceptions I worked on, um, but with few exceptions has been mostly a, a, a tool for, um, you know, Advancing white supremacy, thwarting civil rights, thwarting human rights, thwart, thwarting progress, and uh, structurally thwarting majority rule. You know, I don't think any reasonable negotiator would take that off the table as something to 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 have leverage over. But as as Chris Wallace pointed out, and as you noted, um, he's given up on that. Although you know he could always change his mind if he if he wanted to. Um, you know, if if I were a historian, I would ta- be talking with him about his legacy that his legacy is going to be one of destruction. Uh, If he uh, continues to be in league with Koch, if he continues to um, thwart um, these really crucial measures to redress the terrible Citizens United decision which unleashed this tsunami of dark money into our elections, uh, to thwart efforts to really uh, redress this massive disenfranchisement, this massive voter suppression wave that's built on the big lie uh, uh, told by Trump and and lucrative the big lucrative lie that Trump is still peddling about the election being stolen and there being widespread voter fraud despite the absolute lack of evidence. Um, you know, there's still time for Joe Manchin to get on the right side of history. He's right now very much on the wrong side in my in my personal view. But you know, we've seen people change their minds. Sometimes people do change their minds, and so I don't think people can give up yet. There's a lot of work that has to be done on behalf of the American people. And um, ultimately, for Joe Manchin to uh, run successfully in 2024, he's going to have to show that he can accomplish things, I think. Um, and this is, you know, right now, uh, th- standing in the way of these. this progress is not accomplishing um, any really good results.
0: Well, just in the last couple of minutes, uh, Lisa Graves, the For the People Act itself does have its flaws. I mean, first of all, it doesn't address the really pernicious thing that the Republicans are doing, which is it's not just that they suppress the vote on voting day and gerrymander and are likely to win in 2022 through voter suppression and gerrymandering. They get a second bite of the apple once the votes are in, then they get to count the votes and certify the votes yeah. uh, and put partisan people in charge of the count and partisan judges in charge of the count. None of that's addressed in the For the People Act. So, is there a way that you could fix up the For the People Act, make it better? And I don't know whether you could make it more attractive to Manchin. Uh, I don't know how you'll ever win over any Republican unless there's an appeal to decency here because they'd rather cheat than compete. That's their game plan.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there are a lot of really important parts of the For the People Act, which is that HR one and S one, uh, those bills that are uh, in the House and Senate right now. Uh, it's certainly the case that, that there are ways that they could be improved and made even stronger, including on um, the sort of distortive, distorting impact of dark money on our courts. Um, as as you point out, this situation where we have this hyper partisan, this sort of delusional partisanship taking hold of um, one of the parties and, and trying to basically strip away the powers of the secretary of state, strip away um, the powers of local elected officials or replace and replace them with only like conspiracy theorists or people who won't, who won't uh, speak out against the conspiracy theory, like with Arizona. It's astonishing. Our, as the scholars, there's I think more than hundred scholars wrote uh, a letter in an op-ed last week to say that our democracy is um, in deep crisis Uh, with these maneuvers and we need uh, legislation that's even bolder and stronger than the for the people act but it would be a very very good start um, to move it forward and if there were amendments to make it stronger I think there'd be there'd be wide support for that given the the state of crisis that we're in even though Trump has left we are not out of the woods especially with uh, the people doing his bidding uh, trying to make it harder to vote in order like you said to, to cheat rather than compete um, and so our democracy needs true leaders and true heroes to stand up now and try to make sure that American democracy survives fully into the 21st century and doesn't fall to the sort of Trumpist cultists, in my personal view, uh, in these, in these uh, next few years.
0: Well, Lisa Graves, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Thank you so much, Ian. Thanks for having me on.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Graves, who's Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a Senior Advisor in all three branches of the Federal Government, a as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to the deal Treasury Secretary Yellen worked out in London last weekend with G7 finance ministers who agreed on a global minimum corporate tax rate of
1: 15%. I'd like to buy the Cokes the world so they leave our zone.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state and local legislators and regulators. He is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University and a regular contributor to Forbes magazine, where he covers finance, economics, law and justice. And he's the co-author of the new book, Money from Nothing, or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve. And his latest book is Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Hockett.
2: thanks so much, Ian. Great to be with you again.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, a few days ago on Saturday, a deal was announced at the G7 conference in London by Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary. And this is a deal that gets these G7 countries plus the EU, that's the US, the UK, France, Germany, Canada, Italy and Japan, to agree on a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15%. And, Uh of course, they're hoping that at the G20 conference next month, they can expand that to include countries like China, Russia, and Brazil. So, this has been in the works for a long time, apparently. Nothing happened, surprise, surprise, during the Trump administration. They didn't do a damn thing about this. But now, (laughs) Yellen hasn't been in, in office for very long, but it looks like she's pulled off quite a coup. What do you think?
2: Yeah. Uh, I think it it is a coup. Uh, uh, It's a a great accomplishment, and it's very good news. Um, I don't want to sound complacent. Uh, I don't want to suggest that there's not more important work to be done when it comes to global taxation, but this is an amazingly important uh, first step. Uh, Sort of, I guess, two basic reasons. Um, One is that it's been very difficult to get lots of countries to agree on a single rate, and even on what precisely to tax. Uh, and so in consequence, there's, it's been quite easy for large multinational corporations in effect, to play countries off against each other, basically to play a kind of divide-and-conquer strategy um, by which they managed to get the lowest rates imaginable in pretty much every jurisdiction. Uh, so you've ended up having what's often referred to as a race to the bottom uh, when it comes to corporate taxation, at least as a global uh, matter, right, at least when it comes to taxing uh, multinational firms. The other sense um, in which, so so just the fact that you have an agreement at all on a certain minimum rate um, is is, is very important. Secondly, uh, there is the question of sort of what precisely is to be taxed. Uh, And that, of course, had to be decided in order for there to be an agreement on a single rate in the first place. So it's good that that was agreed, but what's even more exciting is precisely what they decided to target. So in effect, what they've settled on is what is known among sort of tax wonks as a version of what's known as sales factor apportionment or SFA. Essentially, the idea here is you tax firms for what they sell where they sell it, right? So in effect, you're taxing access to particular markets rather than letting them, rather than taxing profits as sort of located, quote unquote, by creative accounting departments that multinational firms tend to maintain, right? So a multinational that has operations in lots of countries all over the world uh, can purport to be gleaning its profits, let's say, in the Cayman Islands because maybe its accounting department is located there. Uh, and so, you know, if it's only taxed um, at the rate at the pl- of the place where it is gleaning those profits and the Cayman Islands is that place and the Cayman Islands doesn't really assess anything – then you don't really get much tax at all. So in effect, what we're targeting now are the world's largest multinational corporations that are able to profit shift quite readily by saying, all right, what we're going to tax you on is your actual sales at the points of sale.
0: So the Irish, of course, they, they offer a low 12.5% corporate rate. I believe mm-hmm. Apple, is its headquarters are there, aren't they, not? <laughs> it's virtual headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> the real headquarters are in Cupertino, north of us here, but um, they set up shop there, right? So their finance minister tweeted out the, the agreement would have to meet the needs of small and large countries developed and developing. What do you think he's mm-hmm. up to?
2: Well, I think what he's up to is what a lot of sort of tax haven countries uh, are up to and what certain states in the U.S., most notably uh, Delaware, Uh, have been up to for a long time, right? And that is that uh, as a sort of cheap substitute, I suppose, for producing things that the world wants to buy, um, and thus as a sort of substitute for exporting goods and services, you can export a tax code instead, right? As long as the general background laws are such that where firms are taxed is sort of determined by where they're headquartered or where they're incorporated or where some other... Activity is 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 located right, and Ireland, you know, regrettably, because it's a very creative population, it's 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 a very potentially productive country, um, has nevertheless decided to sort of play the Cayman Islands sort of game, um, as in a sense of including um, a favorable corporate tax code as sort of one of its as it were uh, exports, but that of course only works if. The countries of the world have agreed that what we're going to tax is where you're headquartered or where your profits are accounted by an accounting department or what have you. But if the world decides instead right, to sort of tax you for your sales at particular places where you're actually selling, then, of course, that makes that particular game of Ireland not so easy to play. Um so I think that's effectively what Ireland is doing is sort of trying you know I think it realizes that the tide is against it um, when it comes to global taxation developments, and that the Cayman Islands game is no longer gonna be a productive game. It's not something that you'll be able to export any longer uh, and you'll have to start actually producing things <laughs> that, that are actual things that people need or could use um, uh, as, as, as a way of, uh, of, of, of sort of keeping your economy running or keeping your population productive. Um, you know, and so they're, they're sort of making noises, I think, about that tide, to trying to get the best they can Um, out of the ultimate deal that emerges but I don't think in the end they're going to be happy so
0: given that hugely successful and rich companies like Apple have Mm -hmm. set up their headquarters in in a tax haven like Ireland yet their real headquarters are in Cupertino in Northern California in Silicon Valley so that is a part of this absurdity this sort of shell game that's going on Mm -hmm. so you've got Apple and Amazon and Google they're all they all play this game. So, mm-hmm. given that there's this agreement for a, an across-the-board a level playing field of a 15% corporate tax, and of course, the argument is it should be higher, and, uh, and presumably the goal is to make it higher, but to, at least yeah. to get get it to work in the short term for everybody's mm-hmm. on board, which is apparently the achievement that Janet Yellen has been able to pull off. What kind of mm-hmm. money, what kind of revenues are going to come into the U.S. Treasury?
2: Um, It should make a a rather substantial uh, difference, Ian, in in sort of two ways, right? One has to do with the revenue boost, and another has to do with the playing field, as we might call it, between multinational corporations on the one hand— and non-multinational domestic corporations, uh, on the other hand, right? Um, And by the way, that helps partly explain um, the attractiveness of this proposal, even among lots of American corporations, because American corporations that are not transnational um, have basically had a raw deal in comparison to the transnational ones. But I'll come back to that in a moment. So we should see an appreciable revenue boost in the sense that the 100 the 100 largest multinational corporations out there that are sort of, again, operating across the globe have managed to pay very, very little uh, here in the U.S. and very, very little actually in most countries, precisely be, and, and quite irrespective of how much they rely on, say, the American market or the Japanese market or the German market for their sales, Precisely because the sales themselves have not been what's been taxed, right, and so their market access has not been taxed, they've simply been taxed on their profits as registered or accounted for in these tax haven jurisdictions. So countries like the U.S., like Germany, like the U.K., any country with a sizable market where a lot of people buy a lot of the products that are sold by these large corporations will see a significant boost to their public revenues. So that's the first thing, right, the, the first benefit. The second benefit is the one I mentioned a moment ago as well, which is that, you know, as you know, lots of producers, lots of companies here in the U.S. or in Germany or in the U.K. or Japan or any place else are not transnational but operate primarily domestically within their domestic markets. And within their domestic markets, of course, current tax codes and current tax regimes end up basically taking, uh, assessing a good deal from them, but not from their multinational competitors or their multinational counterparts, Precisely because the multinationals are able to quote unquote relocate their profit gleaning uh, elsewhere, so in a sense, then something a company like Microsoft or Apple or uh, Facebook, for that matter, or Amazon um, ends up being taxed, you know, much less <laughs> right than much smaller companies that have to operate only domestically. That don't have the sort of luxury of relocating in, in a fa- quote unquote to Ireland or to the Cayman Islands. So you're going to see the proverbial playing field um, between multinationals and domestic corporations leveled by this, too, which is one reason this is not just good for the public copper, but it's also good for, again, domestic producers, domestic companies. And it's ultimately, in that sense, good for domestic labor uh, as well, because the multinationals are also the chief uh, outsourcers, um, right, in the American economy and in other developed economies, And outsourcing is simply not going to be as profitable as it used to be because being multinational in that particular sense isn't going to be as profitable relative to being domestic and being a domestic employer um, used to be, right, or as it used to be. So um, in that sense, uh, I think we can actually see this as a a, a favorable uh, change in the direction of sort of um, reshoring, as they say, or reinsourcing domestic production uh, and hence employing American labor or German labor or UK labor, right, in various um, uh, economies that have, uh, or countries that have large multinational corporations operating in them uh, as well.
0: Well, the reactions from Amazon and Facebook and Google are pretty positive. Amazon says, we believe an OECD-led process that creates a multilateral solution will help bring stability to the international tax system. Facebook says, a significant first step towards certainty for business and strengthening public confidence in the global tax system. And Google says, we strongly support the work being done to update international tax rules. We hope countries continue to work together to ensure a balanced and durable agreement will be finalised soon. Now, what might be motivating them is that one of the things that Yellen worked out with this deal was that the UK and EU countries were going to tax, they were going to put on a national digital services tax against these very huge and successful American technology giants Mm -hmm. and the US felt that those taxes were unfair. So Mm -hmm. is that the trade-off? we'll stop the Europeans from putting an extra tax on you guys as long as you get aboard the global minimum tax of 15%.
2: Yeah, that is the trade-off, Ian. Um, Basically, maybe the easiest way to sort of think about this is to, you know, first of all, to observe that a lot of countries were growing increasingly dissatisfied with the kind of global tax anarchy that's been in place for decades now. Uh, And so various countries uh, and groups of countries were kind of, you know, trying to develop their own ways of dealing with or to act on that dissatisfaction and thereby, you know, in that sense, deal with that particular form of anarchy. And one way of doing that that began to be gathering that seems to be gathering steam, uh, especially uh, as of about a year or so ago, was uh, a new form of taxation that specifically taxed uh, digital companies or high tech companies Uh, which tends, at least for the time being, to be disproportionately American. Um, And that was a way of maybe kind of closing the loophole would would be by saying, okay, what we're going to do is focus on a particular kind of company and we're going to define that kind in terms of digitality or high-tech or whatever. Another way to do it, however, would be to focus on multinationals as such instead. Uh, And as it happens, the U.S. doesn't sort of dominate the sort of multinational space in the way that it still, for the time being at least, dominates the sort of high tech and digital space. So, in effect, what Yellen pulled off was to say, "Well, look, why don't we make the the category that we're going to focus on multinationals as such, rather than you know what they you know what pro- they they produce or what they sell, um, and then that way it'll be less country specific. It'll still be functionally." compelling because we in, in when, when you get right down to it the real scandal of the transnational tax system just is the fact that the multinationals are able basically selectively to quote unquote locate their profit centers wherever the heck they want in order to sort of exploit right the the race to the bottom and and, and get favorable basically zero rates in places like ireland or places like uh the cayman islands so um you know that's the trade-off, and so I think, in effect, what you what you see is that some of the multinational companies, like Facebook or Amazon, are kind of they're all right with this because they're not going to be specifically targeted in virtue of that which they sell. Uh, instead, it's multinationality itself that targeted. That means that they aren't sort of alone in, in being affected by this. Um, right. Uh, and so, and, and, you know, it's not as though they were going to kind of get away with nothing, um, in any event, right. In other words, this looks like the better deal for them than what they, of. but it's also probably a better deal for american workers and for the the public fisc here in the u.s so it's one of those rare circumstances where it might be actually kind of better for everybody except for the tax havens um that said um we do hope to get to a higher rate as you know mr biden was pushing a 21 percent rate originally uh it was you know in the, in the in the in the in the name of compromise was willing to go down to 15 percent but it'd be good if we could ratchet that back up uh, over time to something closer to what Mr. Biden had in mind in the first place.
0: Well, Robert Harkin, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: Oh, of course, Ian. Thank you so much. Always, Always a pleasure.
0: Well, thank you, Robert. again, I've been speaking with Robert Hockett, who's had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He continues to consult for a number of US federal, state and local legislators and regulators. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and the Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, a regular contributor to Forbes magazine, where he covers finance, economics, law and justice. He's the co-author of Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve. And his latest book is Financing the Green News deal, a plan of action and renewal. We're going to take a brief station break. we we'll back speaking with T.J. Newman, a former flight attendant turned best-selling author who joins us to discuss how flight attendants are now on the front lines dealing with 2,500 incidents of unruly passengers and 1,900 cases of refusal to wear face masks this year so far according to the FAA. Now don't ask me what is for If you don't want to pay, you can pay some more.
1: Cause I'm the tax man. Yes,
0: I'm the ta- Kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, TJ Newman, a former bookseller turned flight attendant who worked for Virgin America and Alaska Airlines from 2011 to 2021. She's the author of the new book, her first novel, just out, Falling. Welcome to Background Briefing, TJ Newman.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Anne. It's lovely to speak with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And I obviously want to talk about this extraordinarily meteoric rise from flight attendant to best-selling author. And we're obviously here in Hollywood waiting for the the movie of the book, Falling. But let's talk a little bit about your work, or at least your former work, if indeed you're now a full-time author. It seems like flight attendants nowadays deserve combat pay because according to Lynn Montgomery, the president of local five five six of the Transport Workers Union, that there are at least just in with Southwest Airlines alone, there have been four hundred and seventy seven incidents of misconduct by passengers just between April the eighth and May the fifteenth. And on Monday the Federal Aviation Administration reported two thousand five hundred incidents of unruly passengers this year including 1,900 cases in which passengers refuse to wear face masks. So what's going on? Is this something about our culture getting more coarse and combative? Or is there something about COVID or something about flying? What's happening?
3: Well, I think that what we're seeing happening on the plane is what's happening, you know, all around in all aspects of, of society. But I think everything is heightened when you're in a metal tube with a bunch of strangers traveling, you know, several miles up in the air at hundreds of miles an hour. Um, And I've been absolutely, I, like everyone, I've been horrified by what I've seen and from what I've heard from my friends who are flying. Um, But I think that this only serves to underscore what I think the hidden engine of my book is, is that flight attendants are not on board an aircraft to bring you a drink. Our primary function on board an aircraft is the safety of the passengers on the plane. And I think that that's lost on people a lot of the time. I mean, think about it. The the pilots are in the cockpit. The cockpit door is closed. It's us back there. It's the passengers and the cabin crew. Your safety as a passenger is in the hands of the cabin crew and i think in my book falling that's that's what i present is that that viewpoint of the role of the flight attendant and that's consistent with the crews that i flew with over the decade that i was a flight attendant
0: and you mentioned um, it's not about bringing you a drink as a passenger southwest apparently now is they suspended serving alcohol but now they're going back to serving it again and again a woman was charged with felony battery in san diego from a flight from sacramento to san diego she knocked out the two front teeth of a flight attendant and she also the flight attendant also suffered injuries to her face is that ever have you ever heard of anything like that in previous years or going back to the decade when you started
3: Yes, frankly, yes. Um, you know, physically assaulting a, a member of the cabin crew is a felony. Um, and more more than once I've had to have, um, you know, authorities meet the aircraft when we landed. Um, I've thankfully never had my front two teeth knocked out um, like that, that poor flight attendant had. But this is, you know, it is. The nature of what we do and i think sort of like everything you know we're in a we're in a bit of a heightened state we're coming off quite a year um as a as a global community and i think that you know tensions are high not just in aviation and you know all over but like i said everything once you're up in the air is just becomes heightened which is why it's so important i think that um that viewpoint that the cabin crew is there yes to bring you a drink And yes, to make sure you're comfortable and having a good time. But if something goes sideways, it's us. And I hope that my book Falling reminds people of that and paints that role in that light.
0: And is there a remedy like more marshals traveling undercover on planes?
3: I think the remedy is a deep breath and... and Everybody hopefully just, you know, empathy, I think. If we can also look at one another with empathy and understand that, you know, okay, me as a flight attendant, I'm looking at you as a passenger and I'm saying, I know tensions are high. I know it's hot under that mask. I know that you spent an hour in security. I know that, you know, this is, you missed your first flight and you're on your second flight. I know you're tense. And if you, and if the passenger can then look at the cabin crew and say, I know you're doing your job. I know you don't want to play mask police, but that these are the regulations and you're only doing your job. I hope that we can start to look at each other from a place of more empathy like that. And I think there will be a natural de-escalation.
0: And again, I'm speaking with T.J. Newman, a former bookseller turned flight attendant who worked for Virgin America and Alaska Airlines from 2011 to 2021. She's the author of the new book, her first novel just out falling and I mentioned of course it will be a movie at some point I take it Uh, Universal Studios bought you a book and it's become an instant bestseller you yourself are an aficionado I take it of thrillers you have read a lot of thrillers in other words how did you get into this genre
3: I am a child of the 90s that's my bread and butter I was raised on you know Jurassic Park and Speed and Michael Crichton and you know, all of these stories that just grip you and don't let you go until the last page, until the credits roll, that's that's what I was raised on. That's what I love, and that's what I tried to do um, with falling. I tried to grab you from the very first page, from the very first sentence, and I tried to not let the reader go until you knew what the fate of Flight 416 was.
0: But your leap from a reader to a writer, how did that happen? Because I understand that you essentially wrote this book, at least a lot of it, when you were doing the, uh, the red-eye flights from Los Angeles to New York. I guess when all the passengers were asleep, you started, what, doodling, writing? <laughs> how, did, how did you manage
3: All of the above. Started out as doodles and went into full writing. I had the idea for the story actually on a plane, on a flight, um, on a red eye that I was working from Los Angeles to New York, uh, which is also the, the, the flight in the book. That is the path that it takes as well. And I was standing at the front of the cabin and I was looking out at the passengers who were all asleep. And I had this thought that our lives are in the hands of the pilots and for the first time the thought well, how vulnerable does that make them the pilots that's a lot of power and responsibility and I just couldn't shake the thought and a couple of days passed the idea had kind of solidified into a more um, concrete scenario and I just threw out to the the pilot that I was flying with that day hey what would you do if I don't know your family was kidnapped and you were told that if you didn't crash the plane they would be killed what would you do and the look on his face terrified me because I knew that he didn't have an answer. And I knew I had the makings of my first book. And that is the the—that's the plot of Falling. It, it follows flight 416, a transcon from L.A. to New York, and the captain is put in that exact scenario.
0: Well, I won't ask you <laughs> how it ends or have you give away any of the plot, but I take it. You you've got to work with what's happening in the plane itself, and something has to be happening on the ground, right?
3: Absolutely. Yep the the story follows the you know the attempts of the crew and the passengers onboard the aircraft. Exactly like you said, Ian, working with what you have. When you're on an aircraft, you only have so many tools and resources at your disposal. No one's coming in to help. No one's leaving. It's just you um and then also there's the other angle of the ground and and the attempts of of uh the FBI and the family on the ground to to uh, sort of do the impossible
0: well there is and I don't know whether this is intentional or it's just something that's occurring to me but you kind of feeling that there's a bit of 9/11 in this isn't there i mean th- that was such a shock the idea that he, that People, passengers would suddenly kill the pilots and stewardesses aboard a plane, and then of course, we all know what happened to the the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania. Is that any way, in any way it was in your subconscious?
1: I
3: think that September 11th will always remain in the aviation subconscious. It's just a shadow that will always, always be there.
0: Well, obviously, even thinking about it, it's, it's pretty horrific, particularly what happened on the, um, the plane that was um, likely to have crashed into the capital, which was saved by the passengers. So, tell me, though, about you know, the industry in general and what's happening to it, because it's been on life support, essentially, be- thanks to the taxpayer. I think, what, something, $50 billion, I think, has been paid out for PPP, for Payroll Protection. So what are you hearing from your colleagues, that they've essentially been getting paid but not flying, and do you think it'll ever go back to...
3: This is WMNF Tampa. You can listen to the rest of Background Briefing on our HD3 station. Stay Stay tuned for NPR News, followed by Midpoint.